Thank you for downloading the Root Simple podcast. This week, Kelly and I talk to Larry Korn. Reading from his bio, Larry Korn is an American who lived and worked on the farm of Masanobu Fukuoka for more than two years in the early 1970s. He is translator and editor of the English language edition of Mr. Fukuoka's The One Straw Revolution and editor of his later book, Sowing Seeds in the Desert. Korn accompanied Mr. Fukuoka on his visits to the United States in 1979 and 1986. He studied Asian history, soil science, and plant nutrition at the University of California, Berkeley, and has worked in wholesale and retail plant nurseries, as a soil scientist for the California Department of Forestry, and as a residential landscape contractor in the San Francisco Bay Area. Korn has taught many courses and workshops about natural farming, permaculture, and local food production throughout the United States. He currently lives in Ashland, Oregon. And now, our interview with Larry Korn. Welcome, Larry, to the Root Simple podcast. Yeah, welcome, Larry. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. We need to back up for a little bit and introduce you and introduce Masanobu Fukuoka, because uh, I don't want to assume that all of our listeners know who uh, either of you are. So perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself, and then who is this mysterious man, Masanobu Fukuoka? Well, I, I am uh, 67 years old now, and I live in southern Oregon, a small town called Ashland. I grew up in Los Angeles, so I was a completely city boy uh, and went to Berkeley. I've always been interested in Asian studies, Asian people, Asian culture, so that's what I studied at Berkeley. After I graduated, I decided just to go to, to, go to Asia and see what it was like. So my first stop was Japan, and while I was there, I met some back-to-the-land people, uh, there were, this was 1971, and it was the counterparts in Japan to the back to the land movement in the United States where people were going to Colorado and Virginia and the Southwest to set up communes. But there were far fewer of them in Japan, but they had communes that were scattered here and there in beautiful and remote places, and they invited me to visit, so I spent some time hitchhiking from one commune to the other, and I just fell in love with nature and the outdoors, and especially what spoke to me was plants and soil, and everything I've done in my life since then has involved plants and soil in one way or another, which is a complete surprise to me. I never expected that my life would take that turn. While I was there, I met a Japanese farmer named Masanobu Fukuoka, who um, was a sort of farmer philosopher. He had an experience when he was a young person. He was trained as a plant pathologist, and when he was he had a t- had a job in Yokohama with the quarantine division, inspecting plants that were coming in and leaving Japan. And while he was there, he had an experience that completely changed his life. It was for some reason, well, he was, uh, he, he, he saw, he said he saw nature revealed. He saw nature just as it was without any interpretation by the intellect. And, and he saw that it was just perfect and ideally arranged and completely interconnected. And when people try to improve upon nature, of course there's going to be side effects um, because uh, our mind is just not, uh, you know, it's limited and it's imperfect. And so side effects appear. And then people try to correct the side effects and more side effects appear. And this becomes uh, greater and greater until we get to the point where we are centrally today, where almost everything we're doing is counteracting the mitigating the effects of, of the misguided actions that we've taken in the past. So he tried to explain this to his co-workers and to other, his family and friends, and 
nobody could understand what he was getting at. So he decided to go back to his farm and uh, create a concrete example of what he was talking about by applying this understanding to agriculture. So his idea was that if nature is ideal, then we, he needed to examine all of the things that we were doing in agriculture that were um, superseding the natural process. So he looked at the very, very basic elements like plowing, flooding the rice fields, pruning. His idea was, what if we weren't, weren't doing that? What if we stopped doing this and stopped doing that? Which is the opposite of what uh, the approach that that our culture generally takes, which is how about trying this and trying that, making improvements, what we think are going to be improvements. And he went in the opposite direction. How about not doing this and not doing that? So over the next 25 years, I'm saying 25 years because I met him after he had been practicing farming this way for about that long. Um, he, he, he stopped plowing. He stopped flooding the rice fields. He didn't use any chemicals. He only used hand tools, and yet his yields were comparable to his neighbors that used all of those things. But when he first so, came to the farm, right, it, it wasn't so successful. Yeah, he had a, a setback when he initially came curve. there, right? <laughs> he did. He did. He, he had no idea how to do this. There were no examples of it. He had no human teachers to help to guide him, and he, his, his father... He went back to, he inherited his family farm, which is about an acre and a half of rice and rice fields and a 10-acre citrus orchard. But the, the, the orchard was, was run down, the topsoil had eroded down to the um, clay subsoil. And there, was, there were very few other plants besides kind of weak um, citrus trees growing a few weeds, a few acacia trees. So he had to start not only from the beginning, he had to go through a period where he rehabilitated the orchard to get it to the point where he could practice natural farming. That's what he called his method. Because natural farming depends on nature's unique ability to, to produce um, all by itself. So if it's been compromised by, for example, eroded soil, it can't perform those functions. So he, the main things he did was to rehabilitate, the first things he did was to rehabilitate the soil, and he did that by using plants, very deep-rooted plants like daikon, dandelion, burdock, comfrey, and then he put in other plants uh, that... Uh, made channels in the soil, uh, mustard, uh, uh, buckwheat, alfalfa, so that the soil could breathe and the air and the water could circulate. And he added a white clover, nitrogen-fixing shrubs. He used acacia trees to improve the soil deep down. And so the soil improved, and he also really concentrated on getting a diversity of plants going. So after a while, he didn't have to fertilize. He didn't have to fertilize because... The plants were fertilizing for him. He didn't have to worry about insect control because there was a habitat for all kinds of insects, so natural balance was there. And so all of the things that he had to do at the beginning, he stopped having to do because nature took over those services for him. So by the time I got there, the orchard looked like uh, it was just completely filled with plants, the ground cover was about three or three feet tall, all different types of plants, different types of trees, shrubs, vines, chickens, ducks running around. And he also grew vegetables in the spaces between the orchard trees just by scattering the seeds, cutting the ground cover back, and letting the vegetables find their, their own place in the garden. Sometimes it was just a quite remarkable um, system, and it completely goes against all of the assumptions of modern society. So when I got there, I just, you know, was astounded. 
One of the things it's it's sometimes I think easier to to talk about what natural farming is not to get at kind of an understanding of it. And when I first encountered it, I thought, oh, you you throw seeds around and then you sit in a lounge chair and watch it all happen. And I I'm guessing that was not the case. I'm wondering what day to day life was like for you on the farm. Was there what 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 kind of work were you doing? Because it, it if I'm not mistaken, he called that abandonment, right? If you're just lay back and let it go. There was, well, there was more he, of an when engagement. He first, when he first came to the farm, he had the idea that if nature was perfect, then people should just get out of the way. And so he stopped doing anything. He stopped pruning the orchard trees, for example. And the branches crossed and air and light did not circulate well. All the trees got sick. And he killed 200 trees with that approach. And then he realized that, that that's not natural farming. And the problem was that once people get involved by pruning the trees once, then they have to, they have a responsibility to keep up with the pruning and with the um, maintaining uh, what they've done. So with, a, with an acre of rice, and, and he also grew barley in the same field, he got two crops in the same field each year, and a 10-acre orchard, Oh, there's plenty to do. It was not sitting back. We worked every day. But what we didn't do was unnecessary work, like making compost was one of the things that he did not do, even though that's the basis of our organic farming and uh, traditional Japanese agriculture. It's all about compost. But once he stopped plowing the soil and had a continuous ground cover, he didn't have to do that anymore. So, but what we did have to do was this this uh, ground cover grew up about three feet tall during the year, and so during the summer, the students or he and then the students when he had students, cut the ground cover back and just left the trimmings right on the surface to act as a mulch, and we had to thin the fruit set some some years set too heavily, so we had to um, thin out the fruit so that it wouldn't get so laden that the branches would break. And, uh, you know, there were various various jobs. Well, we had to spread the straw. He kept a, all of the rice and barley straw he spread back over the field. And there were the usual jobs of cutting firewood and hauling water from the spring and maintaining the, uh, the uh, shiitake mushroom logs and you know, the things that are just part of, and preserving food for the winter, these are just things that are part of, you know, everyday life. I love the story um, when you uh, first arrived, you were taking your first tour of the farm, and you asked your guide, well, where's, where's the vegetable garden? And he kind of laughed and said, it's all around you. So there were vegetables. Yeah. I, it's, this is so hard for, you know, our um, our garden bed uh, accustomed brains to imagine, but the vegetables were just everywhere. And when you guys wanted dinner, right, you just went out and looked for vegetables. Isn't that right? Or you had a mental map of where things were growing at that time? Uh, well, we knew where the vegetables were because we spent all of our time in the orchard. So, but mo- a lot, most of the vegetables were hidden in the grasses or overgrown. Some of them were rambling over branches, uh, you know, squash, and he, he didn't stake tomatoes. He didn't grow anything in rows. He didn't have exposed soil anywhere. What he did was he, he mixed the seeds of all the different vegetables together and just scattered them out there in the orchard. Now, the usual way to plant vegetables is to, to think, well, tomatoes love the sun, so we'll put them here, and these leafy vegetables, we'll put them in a shady area, and you sort of plan that out. It's, uh, you know, we're using our intellect and past experience, and so we're, we're figuring out where to put them. He wanted to bypass that and leave human decision-making out of the picture. <laughs> so he just scattered the seeds everywhere and let nature determine where these vegetables would pop up. And then they receded, and they became and they naturalized, and pretty soon they scattered themselves all over the orchard. So there were vegetables, pretty much everywhere. Some I remember when I first got there, I was walking along and I kicked something, and I go, "Ooh, what was that?" And I looked down, and it's a squash. 
<laughs> it was just they were and there were berries and fruits and everything. You could pretty much just walk around and munch your way <laughs> munch your way along and be perfectly happy. You had to cut paths through the ground cover that you guys used to get around, kind of like deer trails, right? It's exactly like deer trails. Mm. There were trail. There were a couple of main paths, and then, but then once you got out into the orchard trees, uh, you pretty much made your way just by walking through the ground cover. And if if somebody had walked that way before, like within the last three or four days, there was a little bit of a slit there. And if it was, you know, but otherwise, you were breaking new ground pretty much any time you walked in the orchard. That's fantastic. It was quite beautiful, too, I'll tell you. It was just beautiful. So to your Western eye, it didn't look all disorganized and chaotic? You, it, was, it was beautiful? It, it didn't to me because I didn't know any better. Mm. See, I, had, I hadn't farmed or gardened before because I was from the city. And then, so this seemed perfectly natural to me. It seemed very comfortable, um, but it is really strange to people who are used to the typical plowed field agriculture and even the organic, you know, still plowed, mulched at least, um, straight rows. And the neighboring farmers, oh, they didn't know what to make of it, <laughs> of Fukuoka's farm. It looked so different. But his yields were better, right? Or the same or better than theirs? I'm sorry, the what? Oh, his yields, even though uh, his yields... Oh, the yield, the yield was good. The, by the time I got there, he was getting consistently yields that were equal or better. Every year he got yields that were equal or better than the neighbors. And, and they used all of the, I mean, tractors and the chemicals and they flooded the fields and they did all this work and they ran down the soil and they created pollution and and he had this continuous ground cover of white clover in the rice fields and the straw the soil actually improved every year he created no pollution he didn't need any machinery he didn't need fossil fuel so why didn't the neighbors try it ever right. try it because it looked too different because they didn't understand it because everybody in japan works as a team and he was not being part of the team so mm. he, he and he lived way he lived up in the orchard in a little hut although his family had a nice farmhouse in the village his wife uh lived there and they raised five children together it was an odd arrangement even his family didn't really understand what he was doing mm. what was your relationship and so he had some crop yeah. failure you oh, know, plus ahead, he had ahead. some ups and downs. Mm -hmm. He had some ups and downs during those first 25 years. So the neighbors saw that he only got 30% some years, 30% yield some years. And they considered it a failure. And they thought, what the, I mean, rice is the easiest thing to grow that there is. And, and what's, how come he, he can't do it? What's wrong with him? But in, in that year, he saw some places in the, uh, in the fields where something he tried worked perfectly. So the next year, he did that everywhere. That's how he developed the method. He let nature show him, and he just followed along. That's the, that's the thing that's maybe hard for us to grasp is his, his relationship uh, with the natural world. And, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, he was observing nature um, and learning what to do by obser observation. But that's not really correct, because when if you say he's an observer, then you're saying he's outside of nature. His his philosophy is is difficult, I think, for us to to grasp. Can you um, maybe unpack that a little bit? It when, is. Yeah. His philosophy is way difficult for us because partly because we think that we need to be in control to guarantee a successful outcome as if nature needs our help to to stay healthy and and provide for us he was living in a in a almost a different world he was living in the world of where the indigenous people were living all over the world in tribes before the advent of uh, civilization our modern civilization we have a we think of our relationship with nature in a completely different way. We feel that we are 
uh, better than other species, that the world was made for us, that we can just use it any way we like, as if natural law doesn't apply to us. And he was living, and the indigenous people were living within natural limits, and they understood what, how we need to live within those limits so that nature can continue to provide for us. Those were, you know, the native people had two overarching ethics, let's say, that uh, um, informed the way they did things. And one of them was that they never did anything that would undermine nature's ability to continue to provide. And the other was that decisions within the tribe and socially were made with um, the idea of survival of the tribe as the most important thing. Now, when he he and he didn't actually observe nature. Of course, he watched closely what was going on. But he was let's see. It's hard to describe. He was with he was inside nature. He wasn't looking at it. He was looking not outward. He was looking inward. And he he said he didn't need scientific analysis or soil tests or even knowing what the he didn't even know need to know the pH or anything scientific or intellectual like that. He just looked at the plants, and he could tell all he needed to know from from just seeing the condition of the plants. And if he needed to know more, he asked them. He could talk to them. And there's a he had a beautiful line in one of his uh, books that that observation to him was putting yourself in the place of the rice plant. And by doing that, you can feel what the rice plant is feeling. So that's an intuitive understanding. And we uh, have lost the ability to do that because we've separated ourselves from nature by coming to depend on our intellect. And science is just an expression of that. So we are in the world of our thinking. And he was in the world of experience. You also talk in the book about the Japanese concept of, I think it's pronounced mu or emptiness. Um, mm-hmm. How does this relate to Fukuoka's philosophy? Well, it goes right to the heart of it. And in fact, he one of the ways that he referred to his farming was, he called it mu agriculture. And it is, let's see, it's it's really hard to explain because it's one of those where it's it it the the intellect cannot grasp it and the more you talk about it, uh, then the farther you get from the true understanding. But the idea is mu, it's an empty feeling when there's no separation between you and what we normally refer to as the outside world. There was no outside world. It's just you and you sort of dissolve and become part of it the way he described it i didn't know how to describe it to westerners when i first came here and then i came across somewhere in one of his or isn't in an interview i think he defined moo as the it's the 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 person you were before you became aware of yourself and with that, and, and really what he's referring to is the perception of an infant or a, a, a very young child who experiences the world without interpretation and without uh, any previous experience. You see it fresh and clear just as it is. Now, again, this is very difficult for Western people. I'll tell you, it took me a long, long time to, to uh, truly see the depth i always was always thinking oh well he's uh, he's using these uh, absolutes as a teaching tool or something like that but now i see that he was not at all this is that's the world that he lived in although of course he lived in the modern world he was aware of of everything that, that was happening in modern uh society and he writes a lot about uh economics and uh, agriculture and the problems that are going on. But he spent most of his life living by himself up in the orchard, just being a part of everything. Now, some of this sounds like like Buddhism, like 
uh, something from Japan, uh, innately Japanese, I guess I'd say. Was was that an influence on his philosophy? So much of what he's describing is typical of Asian, the point of view of, of Asian spiritual teachers. It's true. What sets his uh, natural farming apart from all the others is that the others have some sort of program where you go through this program, whether it's one of the arts like flower arranging or martial arts or something, or Buddhism, there's a program where the teacher helps you to uh, finally uh, get to a place where you don't need the, where you become one with everything, just as I tried to describe, and then you don't need the program anymore. Well, natural farming has no program from the beginning. There is no program, there's no uh, all it is is farming. It's just living every day and providing the things that you need. And it's no guarantee that you're going to have a, a breakthrough experience where you experience this uh, becoming one with everything. But by living close to nature, uh, you've got a much better opportunity for that to happen. And the other thing that sets it apart when you're doing say flower arranging then or pottery or something then the product of the art is you know very not is a very little practical value it's just the process of course it creates you know high-minded uh, people who presumably will do good works in the world but with natural farming you're actually uh, improving the environment and providing all the things that you need and um, you know, it's it's just an example of a of a way that people can get along with uh, nature in a better way. And again, this is what people were doing all over the world until about eight or ten thousand years ago. Do you think he was conscious of that history, or was this something that was intuitive that came out of this mystical experience that he had? Um, what this way of living? Yeah, this. Um, I mean, you spoke of of indigenous agriculture. Was was he a student of that, or or did this was this kind of again something that came out of his own mystical experience? Oh, well, you know, he he grew up as a as a in a typical village doing. T- he was grew up uh, working in the fields just like everyone else, and he had it. Uh, uh, and then he had this experience which was completely different from what he had learned as he was growing up. He tuned into something I think that was, in my opinion, was is just universal. And, well, it was, it's universal, and that's why there's, I see, very little difference between what the uh, indigenous people were doing and what he was doing, but he expresses it through his Asian culture. So, Many people, when they read his his books or his explanations or heard him talk, they associated it with an Asian understanding. But it's it's much bigger than that. It's a it's a larger understanding that that transcends uh, culture, or it transcends modern culture. Well, the indigenous people, that culture was goes goes back to the beginning of human existence. And people learn to live within nature by trying things and seeing the results and acting and seeing how nature responded to their activity. They were able to uh, uh, talk to animals and plants and ask them how to get along, and they just observed how the plants and animals got along. And this knowledge was passed down from one generation to the next in an unbroken line. So that is that culture. And then we broke that chain by disregarding natural law. We're just, it's, we're just not going to buy that anymore. We're going to do whatever we want and take whatever we want and, and, and so forth. And so that cut us off from the understanding of the earlier people. Yeah. We can't see that world anymore. Or we can, some people can, a few people can, but it's still ingrained within us. It's still deep in our subconscious because we're human beings. Do you think we can go back? Can we, can we find Definitely. that again? 
definitely. Mm. Yes, that's what natural farming is about. That's the core of it. It's not the technique of, it's not the rice growing and the, the farming example. That is just an example of this. It's ending our isolation from nature. We have become estranged. Natural farming teaches us how to get back. That is the essence of the whole thing. I don't have the quote here in front of me, but somewhere in your book, you say he said something along the lines of by healing ourselves, we heal nature, or by healing nature, we heal ourselves. Is that correct? Yeah, it's the same process. Mm -hmm. It's the same process that as you're working, see, natural farming, as I mentioned, natural farming works best when nature is whole and it, it and it, human beings work best and feel best and are healthiest when we are living according to our uh, original selves. We have everything that's gone on with civilization and what you see, what we see every day. This is just a reflection of what's going on inside the people. So as we, you can either work from the inside on yourself and then you will start to act differently and you'll see changes in the world that reflect what's going on inside, or you can work from the outside and change the way you farm and change the way you uh, lead your life, and a corresponding change will happen inside. Fukuoka believed, that's why he, yeah, so he said things like the, the real goal of natural farming is not just growing plants, it's the cultivation and perfection of human beings. And then in the last chapter of my book, I titled it, Without natural people, there can be no natural farming. It's really hard to practice natural farming unless you have made the commitment and have moved towards becoming a natural person. Mm. So it's a two-way, it's a two-way thing. It's quite wonderful, actually. The well, whole idea, the whole concept. What was your personal experience on the farm with him as your teacher? Did you have? The, the sense that did you have a formal relationship? I mean, were you did you do you think you became a natural person after that encounter with him in Japan? Uh, no, no. <laughs> but I, I certainly tried. I was heading that way. It, it's taken me. It's been a long journey, and not everything was, you know, things. It's been thirty five years since I went to his farm, and no, not all of it. It wasn't all apparent right at first. But he did his best. He was a great teacher, challenging sometimes. But I had a friendly relationship with him. But it was always on a, well, in Japanese sensei, it's always on a master-disciple relationship, which is, it wasn't formal because he didn't have any program. But um, I treated him like he was a, one of these Asian senseis. He was. And I felt lucky to be instructed by someone like that. Also, I learned how to farm, and I had the, the, the opportunity to live in such a beautiful place and to, you know, work every day and to be with these other like-minded people. And we became friends, but there was always, you know, friends only from a, respect, in a respectful place. Now, he came to the United States on, for twice, for six weeks, and I set up his itinerary and uh, traveled around with him and translated. And so we, we were like on a road trip. We were buddies. But, you know, uh, up to a point, he was a sensei. So that's, there's always a little bit of, I mean, there's this little thin wall of um, formality mm -hmm. that was there. We no. got along great. I don't know why. I love Japan. <laughs> when I got to Japan, I felt like I was home. Mm. It, Japan's a strange place like that. People, it either speaks to you, and I, I met a number of Westerners who were living, had been living in Japan five, ten years. They just loved it. Just, but more Westerners come and have the opposite experience. Like, you know, they can't can't get used to the crowds and the pace and the formality of the culture, and they just can't wait to leave. But for me, it was wonderful, and I fit right in. I'll tell you, the, this uh, mass 
pastor-disciple relationship has really worked for me. Mm. Um, I still, you know, it's really worked for me. Kept me humble, too, <laughs> which is another thing that is very helpful in this process. <laughs> now, picking up the story, of course, uh, yes, Fukuoka, speaking of America. Right, well, before that, of course, mm. he writes uh, The One Straw Revolution in Japanese, and then at some point you take on what I m- must imagine was an unimaginably difficult task of translating this philosophical book into English and then bringing it to America. What, what was that like? Well, that actually, I mean, it was a lot of hard work, but there was a magic about it. There's a magic about this whole thing, natural farming, and about that book in particular, The One Straw Revolution. It happened to come out in Japanese while I was at the farm, and several of us together did the translation. I can't read or write Japanese well enough to translate. Um, I, I could speak pretty well at the time, but uh, uh, we enlisted a friend of mine who I met on the communes, grew up in Japan, a Westerner, and he could read and write both languages perfectly. So he gave us a direct translation. And then another fellow uh, who was at his farm at the time, we sat down and went through that direct translation, and we met with, with Fukuoka-san, many, many times for long hours to go over the whole thing to make sure that we understood it perfectly. And uh, we explained that, you know, Western readers are a bit different from Japanese readers, and they're used to hearing stories a little bit differently and so forth. So he allowed us to rearrange some things that, that made the book as effective for, you know, English language speakers as it was for Japanese speakers. And when we thought we had a decent draft... I was uh, the one that brought it to the United States to find a publisher for it. None of us knew anything about what we were doing. Nobody had experience, professional experience. I knew nothing about publishing. But you ended up with Wendell Berry as your editor, which is another fantastic (laughs) The book had magic. The book had magic. I was just describing to somebody at the Whole Earth Expo about this process right here, Mm -hmm. and, and they said, so... So how did you how did you find a publisher? He said, "Well, basically, the book found its own publisher," and I was like, like somebody who was taking a a very big dog for a walk <laughs> on a leash, and the dog had definite ideas on where he wanted to go. <laughs> I was pulled along, um, and whoever I showed it to, they loved it. We actually we had three publishers that were interested, but. But Wendell Berry, uh, you know, that was came about through a connection with Gary Snyder, who's a poet and activist and who lives in, here in the California. He had lived in Japan and uh, helped to found some of the communes that I went to in Japan. So I showed it to him, and he he said I should send it to Wendell, and Wendell liked it a lot, and he suggested Rodale Press. They were putting out all the best books at the time. It was Rodale Press and the Mother Earth News. That's where the Back to the Land people and the environmentalists were getting all of their good information. So he just took the book under his wing and made sure everything went right for it. That's why the book reads like poetry, too, because mm. Wendell's a poet. And he also knew about the farming issues. It was just really, Match made in really heaven. lucky yeah. break, you know. I didn't have a car. I was hitchhiking even back in the United States and taking the bus and walking a lot. I had no, you know, this was such a, done on such a shoestring. I mean, just a handful of us. It's really remarkable. Now the book has sold over a million copies. Yeah, what was it like so, when it first came out? What was the reaction? Oh, immediate success. I mean, people just, like they were waiting for this book. Now remember, this is 1978. And so, again, the environmental movement and the Back to the Land people were right there. This book just spoke to them. Um, And it was a practical example, which is what the movement really needed was practical examples. People had all of these ideas, but not that many demonstrations. So even though the demonstration was in Japan, at least it was you know, there was, you know, I was there. I mean, I had been there and other people had been there and there were photographs and there was, you know, this was a real place. So, I, but it's the philosophy. Again, What I don't know how many times people have said to me, what's in the One Straw Revolution 
it was very familiar to me. It's as if it had been in my subconscious forever, but I'd never heard it expressed in words. And I think that's the effect of that people still remember the way we lived in the world before we separated from, before we, you know, separated from nature. And this book is about that. And we still remember it. And that's why I think, um, Kelly, that uh, we can, sure, sure we can go back. It's always available to us, anybody. You don't have to be a farmer. Mm. It's available to anybody at any time. But we do, I mean, I agree. I, I, I feel that too, that recognition in the text. And, it, and it's such a wildly popular text. Yet, how many people are actually adopting? Like there's the, the split between thought and practice, as always with us in the West. <laughs> so there's people who uh, love yeah. the ideas but are not practicing it at home. Have, have you seen yeah, the, good examples of people doing this? There, there, it's true that not many people are actually practicing natural farming. I've seen a number of places where people are on their way. Mm. You know, they're heading in the right direction. And it's um, you can tell that it's a process of they're clarifying their thinking and their relationship with nature. And as that becomes more clear, then their farming becomes more clear, um, becomes much more to resemble natural farming. But the place where there are a lot of examples of natural farming is in India and Mm. Southeast Asia. That's where natural farming has really, really caught on. And I think, I don't know, I think it's because the... People there see the world through the spirit first and the physical secondarily, just like Fukuoka-san did. They can see the message first and then they farm, and that the farming is an example. But most Westerners, I don't want to say just Westerners because it's people who think in the way of modern civilization, which is, you know, all over the world now. But they think of the physical and the farming techniques first, and then, oh, yeah, there's that philosophy, which I don't understand <laughs> very well. Um, so that's going to be really hard to get to natural farming from that direction. That's one of the things I really liked about your book, The One Straw Revolutionary, uh, is that you're finally understanding it as a philosophy and realizing, oh, you know, this doesn't, it doesn't have to be a big farm. It could be done in a backyard or uh, anywhere, actually, because it's a philosophy, not a set of techniques. Uh, do you want? And That's well, right. And interestingly, of course, you and I'm jumping around in your life a little bit, but you went on to be uh, you did landscape work, right? I mean, did 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 this philosophy ever apply to your working life, professional life well, later on? Well, I have to say, you know, everybody's got their own you know, personal destiny and their own dramas and challenges. And so I, you know, took me, you know, I didn't follow the course of natural farming in a direct path. And there was a period when I lived in uh, Oakland and Berkeley in the San Francisco Bay Area where I, you know, was uh, living the life of a householder. I had a daughter that I was raising in a normal school in the middle of the city and I needed to support the family and I applied my understanding of plants and soil and and created a landscaping business and I did that for 25 years. It had very little to do with natural farming. I mean, I tried to educate the uh, um, clients as best I could and I didn't use chemicals, but you know, it was still ornamental landscaping. I put in lawns and sprinkler systems, and it was very far from natural farming. <laughs> but then, as soon as I, as soon as my daughter went off to college, and I had a chance to come back to live in a smaller town, and where I am now, most I'm back in with the organic farmers in the local community, and I feel like I'm um, back on track in a way. Mm. So, yeah, it's. Yeah. Not a straight line. I can't imagine any landscaper being very successful in advocating a wild landscape, you know, (laughs) at this point in our culture. (laughs) Well, there's people that try it. And a number, a lot of the permaculture people try to um, get more wild landscapes into landscaping. And and I give them credit for that. 
Mm-hmm. I usually, you know, when I tried, to, I did design several yards that were that were pretty wild, and uh, I referred to those as uh, I sold them to the clients as uh, ecological landscaping or um, edible landscaping and or things like that. Um, I didn't really go into the philosophy. I don't think very many of my clients even knew about my connection with uh, natural farming. Mm. This reminds me, you have a very interesting and provocative chapter in, in your book on permaculture and how it's different from natural farming. Do you want to say something about that? Uh, sure. You know, permaculture is something I know very well. I've taught many permaculture classes, but it is fundamentally different from natural farming, and it, and it, it revolves around the issue of control. And uh, control is probably the, gee, it's, it's one of the uh, main characteristics of our modern culture. Permaculture is, has both feet in our modern civilization, and Fukuoka's natural farming has both feet in indigenous culture. And the way you can tell that is because the, the permaculture people, their idea is to design systems that are based on what they observe in nature. So you could call it ecological farming, I guess, but because they, they want to have all of the elements interacting, so they go out and observe nature and the patterns in nature, and then they collect a whole lot of information about the soils and the water, and, the, and they take all of the elements that they're going to put in the design, and they categorize all the things that they need and all the things that they can provide to the other elements. And then the designer sits down and creates a design so the designer is completely in control, and it's entirely an intellectual process. And with natural farming, uh, the, that's exactly what Fukuoka wanted to get away from, was having the, the uh, farmer be a designer. He wanted nature to, to do the design, and that's why he just scattered seed balls all over the place. When he, did, when he talked about the design of his orchard, he said, you know, when I first came to this orchard, I had no idea what to do here. So I just scattered seeds, and I asked nature for guidance, and I asked nature to please do the design. And then I remember, well, it's in the book, that little thing, but we were, when I, I remember him saying that, we were sitting out at a place where we looked out over this beautiful orchard with trees of all kinds, and it was blooming and full of life and there were insects buzzing all over the place. He said, I had nothing to do with the design of this orchard. Nature did the, did the design. And with the permaculture, sure, it's patterned after nature, but it's human. It's a, it's a human idea of what nature is. So it's a fundamental difference, although the, the really good permaculture like edible food forests and many of the farms they do look a lot like Sensei's farm, but the approach is different. And it, some may say that, well, what does it matter how we get there? Oh, it matters a lot. It, I think it matters a lot because it, with that approach, I don't think it's ever that permaculture will ever make a real fundamental difference in the world where natural farming has the capability of doing that. I say capability, it's true. Not many people are practicing natural farming now, but I don't see any other way than to use that approach. That's just my personal opinion. You know, Fukuoka-san was a fellow that he loved an argument. He loved <laughs> he, when people challenged this idea. Oh, his eyes lit up, and it was like, let's go. Let's have this discussion. <laughs> I, I'm not like that at all. But So I just have opinions, and I put it out there, um, but I don't particularly like the, the back and forth. So anyway, it's just funny. We're different people. I'm sure people probably asked him, well, how do you feed the world? I'm sure that was one of the questions he got. Uh, do you remember what he would say to, to people really oh, push yeah. back him? Well, this on? is the... This, this is the only way to feed the world sustainably. For one thing, you, you need to, nature needs to get back to health, and people need to spread out again and um, uh, farm on small plots all over the place. It's very hard to imagine practicing natural farming on a huge industrial scale. So there's, I don't know, how to, I don't know exactly how that would ha- happen, 
politically or how society could decide to rearrange itself that way. But people could produce a lot more food if there were more people on the land growing food for themselves. And there's also the problems of the fact that our modern agriculture, which is supposed to be feeding the world, is actually the least efficient farming system ever devised. <laughs> if you take into account, if you take into account all of the uh, inputs, like the need to to do mining and to pull out fossil fuels and to create factories and to create tractors, plus all of the pollution and running down the soil, so we're producing food, but at what cost? A huge cost. I mean, we we are so running down the system because we're putting much more energy in than we're getting out. With natural farming, you get a net gain. So anyway, hmm. that's so we're back to your original question. Um, yeah. It's the only way, really, to feed the world on a sustainable basis. Yeah. Now we're getting towards the end of our our time here, uh, and I I wanted to back up and have you tell one anecdote, which I I saw you speak at the Heirloom Expo, and a, a light bulb really went off when you told this story about. And I think it kind of nicely summed up Fukuoka's philosophy for people who might still be a little confused, and that is the time when you took him to the uh, native plant garden. I think it might have been Oakland. Uh, what what happened when you took him there? Well, this was, we were in Berkeley, and we went up to the Botanical Garden in Strawberry Canyon, right up above the campus, and we went, I took him to the, we'd been traveling all around California, and I thought he would be interested in seeing the native California plants section. So we came there, and, you know, it's arranged by counties and by bioregions, and he started looking around, and he was, like, mildly interested, and then something caught his eye. And he, he, he started looking, he bent down and he was looking at the weeds that were growing up in the pathway. <laughs> and the, so he wasn't so interested, even though, even at a botanical garden, he wasn't as interested in the display which people had created. He was looking around desperately for some indication of what nature wanted to do in that place, in spite of the fact that it had been covered up, essentially, by a botanical garden. Do we have time for one real oh, quick yeah, story? Of course. Oh, yeah. Okay, as far as, it just it dawned on me that this is a, an example of how here, people can see the world completely, look at the same thing and see the world completely differently, just like people who are from our culture see the world one way and the, the indigenous people look at the same thing and see it completely differently. We had been in, in New England, and our last stop was... Los Angeles. So we flew from from Boston down the southern route, and we went across uh, Texas and uh, northern New Mexico and Arizona and the Mojave Desert, and then finally, then oh, Los Angeles! My goodness! And he said, "How many people lived here?" I said, "At the time, there were around 14 million." And he so that was a shock to him because of people living in the desert, essentially. So. My, he stayed with my parents for a couple of days, and they picked us up at the airport, and we decided instead of taking the freeway, we would take uh, city streets to go back home. So we went through Beverly Hills and the west side, Beverly Hills, Bel Air, and if you haven't been there, it's uh, big, wide streets with tree-lined, and the houses are all the same pretty much, that there's a a, a big, long with a walkway that goes right to the front door, and there's um, uh, um, annual plants, borders, and tropical plants, ferns, and and so forth. And then there's this big mansion, one after the other. So he's looking out the back window going, oh, this is just, this is horrible. People come, 14 million people come to live in the desert, and, and they're putting in plants that take extra water. You know, and he's uh, so out of touch with nature, and he said, blah, blah. Then looking out the other window, his wife, Ayako-san, is seeing exactly the same thing. And and she kind of, this is the only time I ever heard her do something like this. He was almost mocked, Sensei, by saying, oh, look, 14 million people come to live in the desert, and look what beautiful surroundings they've created for themselves. <laughs> 
So you can see it, you know, it's, it's the perception. And it's our perception. The world doesn't change when our perception changes. But uh, anyway, I thought that was pretty interesting. <laughs> the two, the two different things, and they're they're married to each other. <laughs> <laughs> it was an arranged marriage, but they did get along great. And and because I know there'll be some people from this area going, but Los Angeles isn't a desert; it's a Mediterranean climate. Because <laughs> we're all very sensitive about that. Oh, but that's he, another story. That's another story, and it, you know that he he understood what a Mediterranean climate was, but he believe that you know we had uh what is the word desertified <laughs> or Deserter, yeah. desertified yeah. that sounds like desserts which sounds good which is not desertified that's it yeah, <laughs> yeah desertified well he saw that he saw what we had done here in california that we had we it's not only the climate everything that we've done here in california and i grew up in california everything we do makes the place more arid it's cutting trees it's overgrazing it's um, uh, draining the uh, Thule marshes in the San Joaquin Valley. It's it's draining the Delta, putting up dams. All of those things make the place more arid. The, there's no more uh, perennial bunch grasses, but annual grasses. It's less organic matter in the soil. So we have really turned the place into a desert. But uh, people here are just not willing to um, admit or accept that. They don't want to take responsibility for it. So they just say, oh, it's the climate. Well, so. Larry, um, I want to thank you. But first, yeah, I that know, that's a note. little, uh... um, Well, but uh, <laughs> here's, the, here's the thing. I think, okay. you know, we, we, before we started rolling tape here, we were talking about how we could literally talk for 10 hours because there is a whole book that, that I believe you translated as well, uh, Sowing Seeds in the Desert. That, that covers this, because um, Fukuoka had a lot of interesting ideas about, uh, I guess he called it the second generation, uh, Genesis. Um, but that, that would be a whole Re- reversing, other... Reversing, reversing yeah, desertification. Maybe we need to have you back on the podcast to talk about that. But um, do you want to say well, something why about... See, why don't you run this, run this one and see, <laughs> see if... Um, if there's a, a positive response, I'll be happy to come back. Yeah, we'd we love to have you. We can move on to any other topics you like. Yeah. But do you want to say something about, uh, well, your new book? Let's let's start with that. And then also oh, the books yeah. that you translated and how people can uh, get a copy and find out about where you're talking or things that you're doing. So I helped to translate and edited The One Straw Revolution and also a book that he wrote in 1995 that we just recently got published in English called Sowing Seeds in the Desert, and there's also a book called The Natural Way of Farming, which talks a lot about the nuts and bolts and how he developed his farming system in Japan. But a lot of people, even with all that material, people still didn't seem to understand or get what he was trying to say. And after many years of hearing the same misconceptions and the same questions, I decided to write my own book, about Fukuoka-san and natural farming in the hope that um, I could explain it from the point of view of a Westerner and to help people maybe uh, understand it a little bit better. Also, I wanted to have some fun, talk about my time traveling around in the communes in Japan leading up to when I went to Fukuoka's farm. And I take the reader up into the farm to work with the other students and a bunch of stories, a lot of fun adventures, and then traveling with him in the United States. So you get an idea of who Fukuoka-san was as a person. And for people who are interested in him, this is, I don't think, anything that's really ever appeared in print before. So I just wanted to make that available. So the name of that book is One Straw Revolutionary. And that came out only about a month ago. But it is available from the publisher, Chelsea Green, from your local bookstore. Anybody can order it if they don't have it in stock, from Amazon, ABE Books, pretty much anywhere. I'd, I'd tell and, people, actually, they should almost start with the One Straw Revolutionary, because I thought it provided a nice introduction to the ideas, and then they can move on to Fukuoka's yeah, books. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a really good place to start if you haven't started, certainly. And if you have read the original books, it this will clarify a lot. A lot. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a great book. Well, Thank I you do for give it, very... I do give, a, 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 in chapter one, the introduction in chapter one is a, a nice bio introduction you know, that how Fukuoka 
came, who he was and how he came to be farming this way. So it does. So you could actually start with my book or One Star Revolution. I had never thought of that before, actually, starting with my book. We recommend it. (laughs) All right. Well, Well, Larry, well, well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, it was wonderful. Oh, thank you. I I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. (laughs) Good, good. That was Larry Korn. Larry's website is onestrawrevolution.net. His new book that I hope you'll read is called The One Straw Revolutionary. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please consider sharing it with a friend or posting it to Facebook. And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.